Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic. I want to welcome you. You got any people here in the 30 days? Uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. I want to tell you what they told me. Stick around. We need you desperately. Don't go nowhere. My sobriety date's May 12, 1984. My home group is the Vista Men's Robbers Roost. Meets on Thursday night. A bunch of convicts. We got 350 years between us in prison and our goal is to get that much clean time. If someone gets drunk in our group, we take it real personal. You know? <laughs> I want to thank these fellas for hanging around that airport. I didn't think they were going to let me into Mississippi. I started to take that real personal yesterday. That clock just kept changing. The plane's leaving in 10 minutes. Oh, ten more minutes. Not ten more minutes. And it just went on from two o'clock till about four thirty. And it was just about an armed riot in that airport. There was a lot of people besides me had to go places. I want to thank the committee for asking me to come out here and uh be with my friend Liz. We got to be together in Alabama and we had a good time out there. We make a lot of new friends. That's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous. I meet people everywhere I go. They're just like me. Well, I'm gonna tell you what it was like, what happened, what it's like today, in a general way. My father's Irish and Sioux, and my mother's Irish and Cherokee. And when my daddy drank, my mama liked to fight, you know? (laughs) And this is the way it was, you know, we'd be waiting around that house, and if he wasn't home at a certain time, people started getting nervous. And the later it got, the more nervous we got. And that truck we rolled in at about midnight, if you looked out the windows, you'd see all the neighbors coming out of their house with their lawn chairs, you know. (laughs) The show was getting ready to start. And and I don't know if my father was an alcoholic. I have no idea. None of my business. And I do not blame my alcoholism on my father. If anything, in this world, my father taught me what alcohol will do to a family. It taught me what it will do to a man. taught me what it will do to a marriage and what it will do to children. He was a prime example, you know. And I swore to God I was never going to be like my daddy. I was never going to do that. I was never going to lay a hand on my wife. I was always going to be good to my kids. I wanted my neighbors to respect me. And I wanted all that stuff that we didn't have. And I, I blame my... Uh, Alcoholism on the San Diego Unified School District. So. <laughs> when I was about 12 years old, they had this great idea that it was time to start teaching the young people about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. I knew all about alcohol. I didn't know too much about drugs. And I want to state right here, you know, that I understand and I respect our singleness of purpose. 
with all my heart. There's drugs in my story, and if that offends somebody, I'm give you an opportunity to grow tonight. <laughs> but they showed us that movie. See, I was never going to be a drunk, but there was something wrong inside of me, man, and I wanted something to fix me. It was empty and hollow and scary. I grew up in a neighborhood with all Hispanic, all Mexican, all first generation, and uh, me and my brother were the only ones that spoke English. We went outside of that house. We knew we were different than Mexicans wanted to beat our ass, you know. We went in that house. That Indian wanted to beat our ass. And we stood in that door many, many days. We didn't know if we wanted to go out or in, you know. Who do we want to fight today? And, uh, and what is the result of that? We got real nuts. We got real mean. We got real crazy. And we got real scared. Most dangerous people in the world is the scaredest person in the room. And I knew something was wrong with me. You know, I knew all about these first three steps a long time before I came into this program. You know, I knew that I was powerless over this world and my life was a mess. You know, it just scared me to death from the minute I got up until I went to sleep. You know, I've been around, I've been to these churches and stuff. By the time I was 12 years old, people have been dunking me and doing this and that to me. And, you know, and, and nothing took away that emptiness inside, that hollowness, and I was scared to death. And, and no one else seemed to feel like me. I didn't notice anyone else. When they showed us that stuff, I asked my buddy Balto. I said, Balto, can you get some of that stuff? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, why don't you meet me after school? So the next day I said, did you get that? And he says, yeah. And I said, okay, we'll get together after school. We got together after school. He says, we got to go to the store. I said, for what? He says, we got to get us some cheap wine. I said, what do we need that for? He says, I don't know, but my daddy smokes this stuff and he drinks wine. And I said, okay, you know, I was willing to go to any lengths. And uh, <laughs> we stopped at the little market, and we ripped off a short dog, a sweet red pork. We went down this canyon, and we smoked this dope, and we drank this wine. And it happened. You know, One of my favorite speakers, one of the influential people I've ever heard when I first got here was a guy named Serenity Sam from Venice, California. And Serenity talked about his childhood. He talked about how he felt. You know, when he said these words, it was kind of coarse, but you know what? I knew exactly what he meant, and I knew that he knew. You know, and he said, I was born, I fell out of my mother's womb on a cold concrete floor and was crawling across hostile territory towards my grave. And then I discovered alcohol, you know. And I knew what he was talking about, because when I put that alcohol in my body and I smoked that dope, something happened. And all of a sudden, there was color in the world, and I, I, I could do things. I wasn't afraid anymore. I was just as good as everybody else. And, you know, I came to believe right at that moment that there was a power greater than me that could restore me to sanity, and I immediately, with no reservation, turned my will and life over, and I never looked back. About two years later, I got kicked out of school for hitting a teacher. I had been judged by the time I was 11 years. I had a, a, a cute... I didn't get along with society at all, people. I was always getting in fights. I was always rebelling. Everybody was, I was always in the principal's office. I was always on someone's list, you know, and uh, I was antisocial. I almost killed a kid when I was 11 years old with a Coke bottle. I don't even know why. And, uh, and I'd been seeing a psychiatrist, you know, and I got kicked out of school and I came home. My mom had found my stash, a, a pot, and she looked at me and she said, you get out of my house. I'd been waiting for someone to say that to me. And I, I was gone, man, like a rabbit. Boom. 
And uh, where I lived, it was a little town. I went over to the coast, and uh, me and a friend of mine, I'd never been anywhere, I'd never done anything, and uh, he says, look at this. I said, what's that? He read in the newspaper, and he says, they got these people, they're all going up to San Francisco, and uh, all they do is, is they get high, and they listen to music, and, and make love. I like music, you know? Uh, <laughs> I went up to a place called Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. I want other young men were getting an education and learning a trade and going to school and doing what young men do. I got a different kind of education. My father had always told me I had to work hard, I had to do this, I had to do that if I wanted a piece of the pie. And I found out at a very, very young age that if I had the bag, I could have anything or anybody I wanted. And it ain't nothing I'm proud of, but that's just the way it was. I spoke a little Spanish. I grew up in a Mexican neighborhood. I knew Mexican people better than I did Anglo people. And I found out everybody liked this marijuana, and I'd been to Mexico. So I went on down to Met I started smuggling dope before I was old enough to cross that border. And I was arrested when I was 16 years old in Mexico with 200 kilos of marijuana. And I was sentenced to 25 years in the La Mesa Federal Prison in Mexico. And I'm here to tell you, Nice things don't happen to young white boys in them prisons down there. And if anything in this world should have taught me was, you know what, man, the way I'm living, I shouldn't be doing this. I ought to be changing my ways. You see, I had some money and I was hooked up with some people and they got me out of there after about six months. And I continued to do what I do. I went to jail on my 18th birthday with 27 felonies. It's 5.30 in the morning, and uh, I'd been living with this gal, and she was pregnant. You know, one thing I didn't tell you, he said I like children. That's uh, mildly speaking, I like children. I adore children. And that's all I ever wanted to do is I wanted to be a father more than anything in this world. I wanted to have children. I wanted to do all those things that I always wanted to do with my dad. And I was so excited when she told me she was pregnant, and then I went to jail. And I fought that case for almost a year inside. And we eventually, the two other guys were arrested with me. They made a deal, and they pled guilty, and they sentenced those guys to prison. And they released me and his girlfriend and another fellow. And as soon as I got out of there, I went to go try to find my kid, my, my lady. And uh, I went to her house, and her family didn't want nothing to do with me. They wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't talk to me. They didn't let me brothers run me off and, and I'd try to call and nobody would talk, talk to me and they eventually moved and I couldn't reach them and I, and I looked for that woman and I looked for that baby for many many years and I, and I never could find him and there was always this hole inside of me I knew I had a child somewhere and I didn't know where right after I got out of there I hooked up with this young gal she was 15 years old and uh, she bailed me out of jail she bailed me out of jail three times in a row. And I made a decision to never let her out of my life, you know. <laughs> that woman, she's a fifteen year old girl, woke up a judge at two o'clock in the morning to make bail for me. You know, that's who kind of people I want on my side. You know. 
went on down the road, you know, and uh, she told me that she was pregnant, and uh, I was on parole at that time. I knew I'd never make my parole in California, so I moved up to a little town in Oregon and uh, kept it together. And one day, she came and she put this little boy in my arms. And I had never known in my life anything about love. I loved my mama. She scared me to death. I scared to death of my father. And I liked this gal. I really loved the way she got me out of jail, you know. But I'd never really known anything about real love, you know. And they put this baby in my arms. And I looked at that little boy, and it was the most magic moment in my life besides open alcohol. But I looked at that little boy, and I fell head over heels in love. Absolutely, totally, unconditionally in love. And I looked at that little boy, and I made all these plans and all these dreams, what kind of father I was going to be, and I made him all these promises for things that me and him were going to do. And, uh, and I meant it with every fiber of my being. My son, he really got down the road a ways, and we found out that he was born deaf, and, uh, and that was all right. You know, He was my boy. A couple of years later, we had a little girl, and it was the same thing. They put her in my arms. And I looked at that little girl, and I fell head over heels in love, just absolutely, totally, unconditionally. And I looked at that little girl. I'm a real alcoholic, man. I don't know about y'all, but things happen in my head quick, you know. I see a pretty girl in an A&A meeting, you know, and before that meeting's over, we've been married, had a couple of kids, divorced. She hates me. I hate her, and I won't even talk to her on the way out of the room, you know. And uh, I mean, it's like that. Just click, 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 you know, and I'm just... I'm looking at this little girl, and I'm making all these plans, you know, and I'm thinking if some guy's going to want to marry her someday. You know, she's still wet. She was just hasn't been dried off yet, you know, and I'm already making plans. And I'm setting the conditions of what kind of man it's going to be, you know, and, uh, and I'm thinking about what kind of wedding I want to give her. You know, and that, that's just the way my mind works. I, think I do things real quick, you know, and, uh, and I made her these promises. And for the next five years, I was the best father a man could possibly be. The things that I did, I made an awful lot of money. And I only had to work. I'd work for about a month out of the year. And I, and I stayed home with my kids. And, I, and we had a real nice big place in California. And it was all fixed up for my kids. And I, and I played with them all day and every day. And we had swing sets. We had clay. We had everything in the world to play with. And we just played with our kids. And, uh, on September 6, 1976, Someone had brought over some real good dope, and I smoked that dope, and it was real hot, real hot. I didn't think about it. I was watching my son playing with him. You couldn't let him out of your sight because he was deaf, and he'd wander off. And I, I didn't even think about it. I just got on my bike, and I went to the store because I was thirsty. I wanted something to drink. I wanted some beer. And I, and I went up to the store, and I got me a six-pack, and I'm coming back down the road. And when I'm coming down the road on my bike, I look down. There's the paramedics at my house, and the, the cops are at my house, and all the which. The neighbors were there, and they were all in this crowd in the street. And I got down there, and, it, and my son had chased me out of the driveway, and he'd been run over by a truck. And I waded through that crowd to my baby boy, and I, I looked down, and I could see his head was split open, and I could see his brains, and, and the bones were sticking out of his body. And something inside of me died. And we went to the hospital, and we spent the next nine months with him in a coma. And me trying to make some kind of a deal with this God that I didn't know nothing about. But I'd cry out to this God to give him, give me back my son. I'd do anything if he'd give me back my son. And my son lived. 
His son lived, but he never emotionally grew beyond the age and intellectually about four years old. He had massive brain damage and, and just so many limitations. We went through 27 major brain surgeries with him, and he was in the hospital more than he was out. And every time we went through that, I knew why that happened. You know, at the same time when this was going on, my brother was my best friend and everything I told you about. My brother was right with me. He was 11 months younger with me, and he was my shadow. We were partners all of our life. We backed each other's play right or wrong under any circumstances or any odds, you know. And we were always together. And my brother came down with an organic mental deterioration called schizophrenia. And my family had him committed to a hospital, and they got him in that hospital. And, and I was trying to deal with my son. And he'd just gotten out of the hospital, and and they got him stabilized on this medication. And one day my brother called me, and he says, Chip, get me out of here, man. And it wouldn't have mattered where my brother was. <clears throat> he could have been in a federal pen, and if he told me to get him out of there, I would have figured a way. <clears throat> I got a lawyer. I had the money. I got conservatorship of my brother, and I... And I bought him a trailer house and put it on a piece of property next to mine. And I brought him home. And me and him continued to do what we did. And uh, my brother started deteriorating. He got away from his medication. He got away from his doctors. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, had to, I had to go to Oklahoma on some business. And I was leaving. And he came up to me and he was crying. He said, he says, Kip, he says, don't go, man. I said, what's up? He says, something's wrong with me. He says, what? I said, I don't know. He says, I'm, I'm coming apart. I don't know what's wrong. But something ain't right, and I'm scared. Please don't leave. I said, look, Bill, it's always been me and you. It always will be, man. We'll handle it. I got to go. I got business to take care of. People are waiting on me. I'll be back in three days. Here's, a, here's some money. I said, just hang tight, baby. I'll be right back. And he was begging me not to go, and I had to pull his hands off of me. And I said, I got to go, and I left. And I, and I got back, and this thing I was doing went sideways on me, and I was back there for about two weeks. I came back, and... I was looking for my brother, and nobody had seen him, and I went back to that trailer house, and I opened up the door, and my brother's head rolled out of the door, and, and his body, what was left of it, was laying there in the doorway, and it was just a big pile of maggots, and another big piece of me died. You know, and I don't tell you this story because I need anyone's sympathy. There's only one point and one reason for me to tell you this part of my life. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about there are those among us who got here with grave emotional mental disorders. And I'm one of those people. Something inside of me broke that day. And I can't tell you what it was. But I'll tell you this from my heart to yours. That I thank God for alcohol. Because if alcohol had not done for me what alcohol does for me, I would not be here today. Alcohol saved my life. Because alcohol worked for me. It took away those feelings. It took away that guilt. It took away those pictures in my head that I couldn't get away from. It could put, knock me out so I could sleep at night and it gave me the courage to get up and go face the day. And if it would not have been for alcohol, and I, if alcohol wouldn't do for me what it does for me, I would not be here. So I thank God for alcohol. You know, they talk a lot about bottoms in AA. And I don't know, I've got my own opinion on that. I've seen a lot of people hit bottom. Might not be the same bottom you're thinking about, but you know, bottom to me is this. I had a friend of mine I was sponsoring, you know, a young man. He was 90 days sober, got in a fight with his life, locked himself up in a van and drank a quart of vodka straight down and killed himself. He bottomed out. He ain't getting no worse, you know. My ex-mother-in-law, she spent the last 11 years of her life in a mental institution with Karakoff syndrome. That's a wet brain. And she didn't know who she was and she didn't know what she was. All she knew was that she wanted a cigarette. <clears throat> 
She wanted a cigarette when she was smoking a cigarette. And she didn't ever got no worse beyond a certain point, you know. So she bottomed and never got no worse. But it's been in my experience, the disease of alcoholism, the way it has affected me. That every time I thought it couldn't get no worse, I found a basement. You know, that the stuff, the people, the money, all that stuff goes pretty quick. It did in my case. This gal I've been living with all these years, and she'd been a good woman with me, man. And Kathy was a good gal. And she was in her pain about her son the same way I was in my pain. And she was drinking and using the same way I was. And I'm proud to say that she's a sober member of this program today, too. But she ran at another guy. But I was getting nuts. I was getting crazy. And she left. When she left, a good friend of mine came over. I don't know if you have this stuff here in Mississippi, California. We call it Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> You've read about it. Yeah. <laughs> this old boy brought a big bottle of this stuff over, and I started drinking it. This lady started pushing on my arm. She said, sir. And I said, what? She said, you have to get off the airplane. I opened my eyes and I'm on this big wide-bodied jet. The plane's completely in empty and my little girl is curled up against me. And I said, where am I? And she said, you're in Fort Lauderdale. I said, I don't like Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> she goes, I don't know nothing about that, but you got to get off the plane. I didn't know what happened. I found out later on that in a drunken blackout, I, I sold about $150,000 worth of antiques and antique rugs for about $3,000 and decided to, uh, I guess this woman had asked me for a separation and I looked on the map and that's as far as I could figure on getting, so I separated, you know. And, uh, the best I can figure that's what happened. I to this day don't know what I was thinking about when I did it. Well, when I got off that plane, I had a lot of money in my pocket, and my little girl was looking at me, and I was trying to act real cavalier, you know, trying to get her, work her, because she'd tell me what I was doing. She was five, you know. <clears throat> she didn't know. I just woke her up, got her dressed, said, we're leaving, and uh, that's all she knew. And so I did what any good alcoholic would do, you know. I, I called a cab. I said, take me to a hotel and stop at a liquor store on the way, because I need to figure out what's happened here, you know. And I come to, strapped to a gurney, and I didn't know where I was, and I didn't know where my daughter was. I found out later I'd hooked up with this couple, and we had been drinking in this bar, and I went nuts. And they had taken my daughter when they took me in. And I got out of there, and I said, we got to leave. This place is unlucky, you know. Anyone here be in an unlucky place? Just, it'll change over here, you know. The next, for the next two years, me and my daughter lived exactly like that. One day wasn't much different from the next. One place wasn't different from the next. Every place we would go, I would make her a solemn promise and a solemn vow. Baby, as soon as I, we get here, I'm going to get a job. We're going to get a house. We're going to go to school. I'm going to be the kind of father you always dreamed about, you know, and we're going to have a good life together. And I promise you, I promise you it's going to be different this time. And we would get there. 
You know, the only trouble is, you see, I've never worked for a living. I don't know anything about working. I don't know. I'm a player, you know. I'm attracted to certain types of people, and I can spot them six blocks away with their back towards me, you know. And I get involved in these criminal activities, and I like that easy money. You know, people have to go to work every day. That's silly. <sighs> and I get around these folks. As soon as I get something, place to live, I start drinking. I start using. Things would get crazy. I would end up. I'd come in. We had to leave. The next place, it was exactly the same place. And we lived in five different states the next two years. And by the time my daughter was seven years old, I walk in that house. I'd gotten drunk in Oklahoma City. And I come in that house real quick, and I had blood on my clothes, and I'm taking my clothes off, and it wasn't mine. And my little girl, she looked at me, and she knew we were leaving. She grabbed her pillow. She grabbed her doll. And she had out the back door. I put some clean clothes on. I was right behind her. We got to the bus. I got a ticket to California. And we were going back, and I got on that bus, and I just passed out. I was drunker than a skunk. And I come to him. I believe it was Gallup, New Mexico. And my little girl, oh, come to it. My girl was crying. I opened my eyes. I said, what's the matter, baby? She said, Daddy, I'm so hungry. You ain't fed me yet. And I said, as soon as we stop, honey, I'm going to get you something to eat. And that bus stopped, and I was sick. I was shaking. I got off that bus, and I went over to this little liquor store. And I, I picked her out a sandwich out of that cooler, and I went over that there and got me a quart of wine. And I got up to go pay for it, and I only had enough money for one or the other. And I had to put her sandwich back. You know, and I've done a lot of things in this world that I don't share from the podium. But I can tell you this, that I've never done anything worse in my life that haunted me more than that moment. But I didn't have no choice. I got back to California. I went over to my mama's house. I hadn't seen her in a long time, and my mama's tough. She's tough. I walked in, and she looked at me, and she looked at my girl, and she says, how come this girl's dirty? I didn't raise you this way. I started to give some excuses, and she said, you hit the bricks. I grabbed my daughter, and I said, where were we going to go? She grabbed my daughter and said, we ain't going nowhere, pal. You are. Hit it. You know, and I and thank God for my mama. She took my little girl. You know, the next three years, I don't know. I know all I did was drink. I lived in the bushes. I lived on the side of the road. And I panhandled for wine. And I drank. I drank until I ended up in a nut house. Ended up in a hospital. Ended up in a jail. As soon as they would let me out, I would start the cycle all over again. And it didn't matter because, you see, alcohol worked. I didn't care about anything else. I just, every time I stopped drinking, everything, all those feelings, all that stuff would start coming up again. And I was out in front of this little 7-Eleven market one morning. It was on a Sunday. This nice family pulled in. They had this nice little square four-door sedan. And this square guy got out with a square three-piece suit, you know, and he had a real short haircut. Had this square little wife sitting in the front seat. And the square little kids in the back, you know. And I just looked at him and shook my head. You know, How can you live that way? <laughs> Now, we're the only people in the world who can be laying face down in a gutter looking down at the rest of the world, you know. <laughs> I looked at this man. He walked by, and he looked at me, and he stopped. And I recognized him. He was a guy I'd known when I was a kid. 
He's one of those guys I hated. He was a white guy who lived in an all-white neighborhood, and everyone loved him, and everyone liked him, you know. And and, and he, I just hated people like that, you know. He had everything I wanted. He looked at me, and he smiled. He said, hi, Kip, and he gave me $2. Now, I don't know if there's any winos, real winos in this room tonight. But when you get $2 first thing in the morning, I mean, your first hit, you know there's a God. You know? <laughs> a quart of wine is going to make me okay till almost 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I ain't got to stand there. I can shuffle off down to my bush, you know. And I, and I got my quart of wine, and I'm shuffling out that store. And I walk by, and I look in that glass, and I see that family sitting in that car. And they're looking at me, and I I was embarrassed. And that was so strange, because I had not been embarrassed in a long time. It was a real alien feeling. And, and I looked at them, and I knew they were judging me. And I shuffled off to my bush. I lived in this little place, a little bamboo patch right on the beach, right on the coast of California. And there was this restaurant up on top of the hill, and the, the septic tank rained drained down into this big bamboo patch and it was a big, dark, stinky place. It was just like the inside of my head. You know, and nobody else would go down there because it smelled so bad, but that was my home. My little condo. <laughs> I was safe there. I crawled down there. And, and I ain't here to talk about religion. I don't believe religion has anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless the religious people. But that was a good Christian family. They weren't judging me because that man ended up to be a real good friend of mine. And, uh, and that good Christian family got out of their car that morning. Instead of judging me, they got on their knees and they prayed to the God of their understanding to help that poor man. And about the time they were praying for me, I had the weirdest thought I've ever had in my life. I said, maybe I ought to go to A&A. <laughs> See, I've been to A&A before. <sighs> And these jails and these institutions and these nut houses and these nice folk are always coming in, you know, and they're all nice and clean cut, you know, and really square, you know, and I, I just felt I was embarrassed for them. <laughs> I'm in a nut house and these people are talking, but I'm embarrassed for them, you know, and uh, they had told me that if I ever had a problem with alcohol, that I should come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they would welcome me with open arms. So I'm thinking, and I don't know how, but I know people that were there to this day that are real good friends of mine. I walked in this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in the back door and I looked at all these people and they looked a lot like you folks. I didn't see an alcoholic in the whole group, you know. And I walked in, I was expecting to reach out and open arms and nobody did. I have to tell you something here. I've been living in the same clothes for almost two years. My beard, hair was down past my waist. And my beard was down past my belt. And I weighed about 120 pounds and a lot of things lived on me besides me. And I had a lot of wine sores all over. And when I sat down, they moved over, you know. And uh, I'm looking at these folks and I'm going, I wonder if they have a room for the more severe cases, you know. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm getting out of here, man. Right off the bat, you people are talking about God, you know, and I'm going, oh, man. The next thing I see, you're passing a basket. I know you're going to start singing any minute, you know. <laughs> and I'm really, really uncomfortable. And there's this one old gal all the way across the room. She keeps looking at me and just smiling from ear to ear. Every time I look at her, she's smiling at me, you know. And as sick as I was, I know I didn't have anything she wanted, you know. <laughs> I thought she must have been one of them brain-damaged alcoholics I'd read about. And I'm really uncomfortable. I knew I'd made a drastic mistake coming into this place, and I'm getting ready to get my hat. I'm getting ready to stand up on that gal. She's jumped to her feet, and she looked straight at me. She said this. She said, I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous 27 years ago. She said, I came in the back door, and I looked at all you good folks. I looked at all you ladies. You ladies, you look like real nice, clean housewives. The kind of women that have hated my guts all my life. I looked at you men, and I know all about you men. You see, I've been a prostitute since I was the age of 14 years old, and I've done everything a woman ever had to do out on those streets of Los Angeles. And I walked in this room, and I looked at you people, and I felt dirty. And I started to leave. But a woman grabbed me. She got me a cup of coffee and set me down. She put her arm around me and she told me this. She said, honey, don't go nowhere. We need you. Proceeded to talk about the next 27 years of her recovery. Proceeded to talk about her home group, about her sponsor, about the 12 steps, about the traditions. She talked about all the marvelous things that had happened in her life and all the painful things she had walked through and didn't have to drink. And she walked over in front of all them good folks that moved away from me. She put her arms around me. Kiss me right on the mouth. Bravest woman I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and she said this to me. She says, please, don't go nowhere. We need you desperately. I have never cried in my life. I've had things happen to me that are unspeakable, and I have never shed a tear. But I'm going to tell you, that woman touched my heart of hearts. And I started crying right there. Something happened inside. And I started coming to this A&A. I wanted what that gal had more than anything in this world. And immediately you lied to me. <clears throat> All of you. You told me if I stopped drinking alcohol, my life would get better. Now, I don't know what alcohol does for you folks. Alcohol is not my problem. It never has been my problem, and it never will be my problem. Alcohol was my solution, you know. My problem is this. I have an acute allergic reaction to sobriety. You know? That's my problem. I start stop drinking, and I know right away why I drank, you know. And alcohol works for me. I wanted what you people had, but alcohol worked for me, and it still worked, and it worked real good. But I wanted what you people had. And I started coming to this A&A on a regular basis. And if there's anyone you here tonight that think you can come to these meetings, and this sobriety thing is going to rub off on you, good luck. <laughs> I come to these meetings and I learned all the lingo, easy does it, one day at a time. And I'm squeezing the women and glad handing the men, you know. I'm going out to coffee with her. I'm going to meetings every single day. I'm involved in it. I can't stay sober, you know. But I, I'm just coming around and around. I just wanted to be a part of this thing so bad. And I'd go out to have coffee with you, you know. And, and I'd do anything. Just don't leave. Don't leave. Don't leave. And then you'd leave. And it'd be all me. 
And I'd go crazy. And I'd have to drink. And I did this for six years. Christmas morning, I woke up, 1983, in that rubber room. And I woke up in that rubber room a lot of times. Handcuffed, butt naked, covered with blood. My face was stuck to that mat. Couldn't get my face off that rubber mat because it was stuck from the blood. And I looked up and I saw all these cops looking down this little porthole at me laughing. And it was Christmas morning and I just knew Santa Claus was coming. No. He ain't coming this year. And they let me out. You know, I did what I always did. I get in an argument with a cop. They beat the hell out of me. They locked me up for a little bit and send me on my way. You know, and they told me. They didn't tell me to keep coming back, but they knew I would, you know. And, <laughs> and I ain't going to come back to this A&A. This don't work for me. I'm that person in Chapter 5. I'm tired of humiliating myself in front of you people. Go to a meeting this size when they ask for newcomers. You know, you've been going to that group for six years. Everybody in the room turns around and looks at you. And they start passing money back and forth, you know. <laughs> I'm just joking on that. And I do what I do, you know. When you come around here and go to these meetings, your life will get better to a certain point. And my life did get better to a certain point. I, I became able to function a little bit. I'd have brief periods of recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. But my life started getting better a little bit, you know, on the outside. It looked a little bit better. I went and took all the money I got. I bought as much liquor as I could carry up to this little apartment I had. And I started drinking. And I drank, and I drank, and I drank. And on January 6th, I hit the place that they talk about in the vision for you in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that says this. It says there will come a time in your life where you cannot imagine life with alcohol or without it. You know, loneliness, few people can even imagine. You'll come to the jumping off spot and you'll wish for the end. And I remember that date crystal clear because that was the date that alcohol it didn't work it didn't take away all those feelings it didn't take away the guilt it didn't take away the pictures I couldn't knock myself out with it I couldn't stop drinking and I wouldn't go down I couldn't reach that point I couldn't shut this thing off and I pulled out my gun and I put it up to my chest and I pulled the trigger and I blew my left lung and two ribs out and it knocked me all the way across the room and I slid down that wall with blood pumping out of my chest, and the only thought I had was, thank God this nightmare is over with. Just let me out of here. And I come to in this hospital. You thought I died, didn't you? <laughs> there used to be this old guy named Charlie Tuck. I'll break his anonymity. He's gone on to the big meeting. I hated that man. He used to be Al Capone's bodyguard. And he got been sober in AA so long that they only had one A in AA when he got here. <laughs> <clears throat> he came down. He got right dead in my face at a meeting in that six-year period, you know. He got down. He looked at me. He had this real deep, gravelly voice. No one, I've never heard a voice like his. He got down right in my face. He looked me right in the eye. And he said, you think you're pretty tough, don't you, kid? I looked at him. I gave him my best jailhouse look. Looked him right in the eye. I said, I'm tough enough, old man. Don't you ever doubt that. He looked at me and he got this big smile from ear to ear. He said, son, he said, you ain't tough. He said, you're the scaredest son of a bitch in this room. <laughs> and that might make you dangerous, but it don't make you tough. And he walked away laughing at me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I tell you, 
From then on in, I'd go, every time I'd go to an A&A meeting, I'd look in that back door to make sure he wasn't there. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, when I got sober and I did my inventory, and I got to my fears, my greatest fear I've ever had in my life that I lived with, it was just absolutely terrifying, was you men were going to see how afraid I was. I was absolutely terrified of men. I was scared to death of them. I was so afraid of you. I'd knife fight you. I'd gun fight you. I'd outdo anything you could do. I'd do anything in the world to prove to you I wasn't afraid. My great, I'd rather die than you see that fear. And that old man, he saw that fear right off the bat. I come to and I open my eye. I hear that voice, that deep, gravelly voice of Charlie Tuck. And I open one eye. I'm not going to give it up, you know. I open one eye and I look at him. He's got these two youngsters with him and they're looking at me. Their eyes are about this big. I got tubes coming out of every hole in my body and a few new ones I'd made. And I, I'm going, oh my God, he's got that big ugly blue book. He's going to start preaching this A&A. I have died and gone to hell. And, uh, and two, two of those two dummies with him, you know. And uh, I shut my eyes, you know. I, you know, he didn't say a word to me. He put his arms around those two young men, and he said, You see this fellow right here? And they went, Yeah. He said, This is what happens to an alcoholic who doesn't take the steps. Come on, we're leaving. <laughs> I'd like to tell you this, that those two men are still sober today. <laughs> I was doing active 12-step long before I got sober. You know what I mean? I got out of that hospital and I'm going to, you know, I ain't coming back to this A&A stuff. It ain't for me. I'm going to go do what I do. And, you know, one of my old partners, he had just made $7 million on this deal. And uh, he came up to me out of that. He says, Kip, come on, you've had a rough time. I got this big place up on the hill. And he did. He had this big place on the hill. He had the best looking ladies living up there. And he had the best dope. He had the best liquor. He had everything going on. And he says, come on up here. Just kick back. And I went up there and I... Uh, and the liquor didn't work, and the dope didn't work, and the women didn't work. I was dying inside. I wanted to die so bad, and I wouldn't die. And I would drink, and it wouldn't work, and I'd use, and it wouldn't work. And it was just every single day, and I'd open my eyes every single morning. And my morning meditation was this. I'd open my eyes, and I'd go, oh, God, I'm still alive. I've got to do it again. And on May 12, 1984, I come to exactly that same way. I come to... But this one thing was different that morning. I'd been to so many of these A&A meetings, y'all had poisoned my mind. Because all I could think of, this is weird, man. 5.30 in the morning, sicker than a dog, needing a drink, and all what's ringing through my ears is the ABCs at the end of chapter 5. That's pretty weird, you know, and I, I'm laying there in my rack, and I'm thinking about this. Well, I'm an alcoholic, a powerless over alcohol. And my life's a mess. I knew I was an alcoholic. I had no problem with me being an alcoholic. You know? But in the 12 by 12, it tells me this. It tells me that I, it don't matter what I tell you people. It don't matter about what I tell me. What matters is inside here deep where I live. In my innermost self. That I understand what that means. And I'm thinking, what does this mean? It was just like a moment I had a vision, and it was like I was back on that bus. And I can remember my little girl. 
me getting on that bus with that cheap wine on my breath and looking at my baby and telling her, honey, I can't feed you. And then, and only then, did I truly understand in here, deep down, what alcohol does. See, when I put alcohol in my body, from that moment on, it don't matter about who I love. It don't matter about what I love. It don't matter about my dreams and my plans, and it sure as hell don't matter about yours. That I'm going to do, and I have to do, whatever alcohol tells me to do, and what it always says is just get me some more. And I understood that, and I knew my life was enough. And I, you know what I said? That no human power is going to fix me. I kept hoping one of you gals was going to fix me. And several of you tried in that six years, and I've always been grateful to you. Wherever you are, thank you. You know, I've been to this A&A, and I've been to that N.A., and I've been to churches, and I've been to temples, and I've been to this, and chiropractors, and you name it, I tried it. You know, I try anything in this world. And there was no human power in this world, not even mine in those six years that I wanted to stop drinking worse than anything in the world. If sobriety would have been a tangible thing, I would have knocked one of you in the head and taken it. And I know how to get things that way. Because no human power was going to fix me. And that left me right at that one spot that I didn't like. And that was that God stuff. See, God had never done nothing for me. I cried out to that God many times when my father was beating my mother. I cried out to that God when my son got hit. I cried out to my God with my brother. And when I was in prison, and my partner was murdered in front of me and a hundred other times, I cried out to this God in a moment of desperation. And God never figured I had anything coming, so I didn't figure he had anything coming to me. You know, God, he likes those people who live in the suburbs. He just don't like people like me. I've pissed him off since I got here. You know, but I started thinking about that and I started thinking about the people I had met in Alcoholics Anonymous and not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, but in other walks of life. And the people that had what I wanted and it wasn't their money and it wasn't their women, it wasn't their stuff. You know, it was a look in their eye and the way they walked through this world with a little bit of dignity with no matter what happened. And all these people had the same thing in common. They talked about this power. They talked about this power that did for them what they could not do for themselves. <laughs> I'm glad you guys heard that too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Lord. I got down on my knees that morning. And it was the most sincere moment of my life, and it's the same prayer that I've ever heard. I heard my dear friend here talk about, and my friend Al talk about this morning. I ran out of ideas, and I ran out of angles, and I got down on my knees with no conditions. I cried out. I cried out. I said this. I said, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you are. I don't think it makes any difference. From this point on, from this very moment on, I will do whatever you put in front of me if I don't have to drink. And if you're not there, I'm screwed. And I will tell you this, the longer I've been sober, it ain't been that long compared to our, some of our speakers tonight. But the more I know of what a blessing was given me that moment, because from that very moment I knew in my heart that if I kept that simple concept, I wasn't going to have to drink that day. And I went and looked up that old man. And I went up to his lovely wife, Alan, 
she was the king of Al Anon in that area, you know, or the queen. She was just the most wonderful woman. And I related to Al. I walked in and, and, and she called me honey. She called me precious and she called me darling. She welcomed me in my house like she'd been waiting for me, you know. And she got me a glass of orange juice with some honey in it. She said, honey, sit down. This will help. Charlie will be right out. He's so happy to see you. I didn't even think he liked me. And I come walk, he come walking out of that room and he just had a smile from ear to ear. Like his prodigal son had returned. And he walked over and he gave me this big hug. And he said, good to see you, Jeff. What can I do for you? Charlie, I don't want to drink no more. I don't ever want to drink again. He says, are you done? I said, Charlie, I pray to God that I'm done. He says, that's the right answer, son. He says, what are you willing to do? I said, anything you tell me. He says, anything? I said, anything. And he sat me down, and this is what he told me. He says, Chip, he says, I've been watching you for a long time. I've been around this program for a long time. I've known a lot of drugs. People like you don't get sober. Very few of you get sober in alcoholics and alcoholics. Something inside of you is badly broken and burned, and I don't know what it is that's between you and your God. He says, but I will tell you this. If you will do what I do, you will not have to drink anymore. Are you willing to do what I do? And I said, yes, sir. He says, come on with me. And we went out to this little park. He lived right on this little park, and it was on a Sunday again. There was all these families out there having picnics and birthday parties and stuff. He says, get on your knees. And I looked at him, and I went, in front of these people? He said, Chip, these people in this community have been stepping over you for the last three years. <clears throat> they ain't going to mind seeing you on your knees one more time. And he took me on that park on a beautiful day, and he held my hands and he prayed. And he told me this, he says, from here on in, absolutely nothing. No child, no woman, no job, nothing in this world can ever be more important than you doing the things that you have to do to maintain your sobriety. And the day that you think anything or anyone is more important than you doing the things that you have to do, that's the day you're getting ready to take a drink and you're not going to get to get sober again. This is it. God has given you a window and I don't know why. He says that he has given you a window. And that old man took me through those steps. In my first year actively, he got me involved in service. He made me go to meetings every single day. You know, I was coming up on 90 days. I said, I almost got 90 days. He says, so what? I said, well, I don't have to go to meetings every night. He said, who told you that? I said, well, you know, 90 and 90. He goes, remember when you were talking, you said you're not like them people? He goes, you're right, you're not. You keep going to those meetings that I tell you to stop. He made me do stupid things like, I get an identification in my real name. Well, I don't know, that's scary stuff, you know. He told me the most outrageous thing. He said to get a job, you know. Sober people work. I said, I want to work on my recovery. He said, get a job, become self-supporting. That's working on your recovery. And I went and got a job. You know, and I didn't know how to work. My family's business was fishing, but they didn't want nothing to do with me. And I went and asked my mama. I said, i got to work. You're the only person in the world. Could you please give me a job? She said, Chip, we serve liquor on that boat. I can't have you on that boat. I said, listen, I'm not drinking. Please, if I drink, if I, you don't have to pay me. Just, just give me a chance. And I, she gave me a job. 
And I went and told Charlie I got a job. I said, Charlie, they drink on that boat. There's alcohol on that boat. He said, you can go anywhere if you got business there. He says, but I'll tell you this. You better find a God and get real close to him. And I'm getting on that boat and they're loading up all that liquor on that boat, getting ready to go on a three-day fishing trip, you know, and I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh, God. About that time, I'm real confused about this God. You know, I don't know too much about it, but this pelican flew right over me. But I said, oh, God, he stopped. He starts flying around me and he looked out at me. I don't know if you got any pelicans here, but next time you see them, look at the way they look at you. It looks just like these old timers, as young as me. Look down at me like this. I said, okay, here we go. Now y'all might think that's funny, but I'm going to tell you, my idea of God has evolved a great deal since that day. <laughs> but, I worked on that boat for my first year of sobriety, and I was around alcohol all day, every single day, and every day the thought hit me to drink, that pelican was flying over me, looking at me. Probably just a coincidence, I don't know. But all I know is I knew something was looking out for me, and I didn't have to drink, and I got to a meeting every single day. Every day that we were on shore, I was at a meeting. And after about a year, you know, I'd met this woman. I met her at the coffee pot in AA, you know, and uh, and we fell in love, you know. And we had six children between us and a desire to stop drinking. And that was it. <laughs> and we were going to get married, you know, we were all in love. She was just a beautiful girl, you know, and every day of my life was one I told her, I said, honey... I said, I love you and I want to be your husband. I said, but you can never be more important than A&A to me. She looked at me and she said, yeah? Well, I'm going to do the same thing. I said, good. And I'll tell you that the next ten years, we had the best marriage in Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever known anyone to have, personally. She was my dearest friend. She was my best friend. She had her sponsor. I had my sponsor. She went to her meetings. I went to my meetings. And in that 10 years, a lot of wonderful things happened, you know. They told me that I had to get off that boat and get a real job. I said, I don't know how to do nothing. He says, you know how to pray? I said, yes, sir. He said, get on your knees. Tell God you've got to learn a trade. I said, I got on my knees. I didn't have a license. California promised me I'd never have one. And uh, I got on my knees. I said, God, Charlie says, I've got to learn a trade. I'll take whatever you got. And I walked out the door. I lived right behind this honky-tonk, and I was married at this time, you know, and I walked out the door and I turned around to hitchhike and this fella pulled up and we'll rolled his window down in his pickup. He says, hey, buddy. I said, what? He says, you want a job? <laughs> Scared me to death. <laughs> I tried to talk my way out of it immediately. You know, I, I said, I ain't got a car. He says, that's all right. My shop's down the street. He says, you get there, I'll get you home. And I said, okay. I said, what is it? He goes, it's painting. I said, I don't like to paint. He says, I'm going to teach you. I said, okay. And I... Uh, I went back, I'm going to call Charlie at 10 minutes. I got a job. I'm thinking he's going to be impressed, you know. I said, Charlie, I got a job. He goes, yeah, what is it? I said, it's painting. He said, that's a good job for you. You don't have to think very much. <laughs> he said, did you thank God for giving you that job? I said, yes, sir, I did. He says, okay. He says, from here is what we're going to do. He said, you're going to go to work for this man. God wants you to be a painter. I said, are you sure? He said, yep. I said, okay. And he says, I got a... He said, you're going to go to work for this man every single day. You'll be the very first man in his shop. You'll be the last to leave. You'll do whatever he asks you to do. You'll never, ever give him a reason to fire you, and you'll never quit. And bottom line is, you will never ask him what he's paying you. Whatever he pays you is a hell of a lot more than you're worth. <laughs> and, you know, he covered every angle there was, you know, and I was looking for an angle. 
he knew me real well. And I went to work for this man. And you know, to make a long story short, I found out that I was a painter. I was real good at it. I went to work for this company. It was 150 men, and I was the only sober person there. And I don't know if any of you know many painters, but that industry is riddled with this disease. And I was the only sober person there. One night, this fellow's giving me a ride home. Steve, he says, you're in that A&A, aren't you? I learned years ago, you don't cop to nothing, even if they got pictures, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> I said, why? He says, I know about you. I know people that know you, and you don't drink. You don't get high with us. You're always smiling. You carry that book around with you, and we're having lunch. You go read that damn book. You're always the first one here every morning and the last to leave. He says, you're either in that A&A or you got brain damage. And, uh, I'm looking at him. I still don't want to give it up. But I said, well, actually, I got a little of both. But why do you ask? He says, well, I'd like to go back to that AA. But he says, you know, I just can't. I raised my hand so many times. I'd just be embarrassed to do it again. I said, well, hell. How long have you been doing this, Steve? He says, six months. I started laughing. I told him about my six years. And uh, I said, I'll tell you what, buddy. I said, I have a hell of a time getting to a meeting on Wednesday night. Why don't you come on over to my house? I live right behind the bar. Me and you will read this book, talk to each other. You can get 30 days, sneak back in those meetings. won't have to raise your hand. Nobody will know. If you change your mind, I'll buy you a drink. And he goes, yeah, I can't lose. I said, nope. And he started coming over. That is now one of the largest men's meetings in North County, San Diego. One of the most active group men's groups there is. It's called the Vista Men's Hole in the Wall. There's over 150 men at that meeting trying to learn how to live one day at a time sober. I became a painting contractor and I made a lot of money. I hit it right in the middle of the 80s in California. Man, the money was growing on trees. And I, and I got rich. I got all the stuff. I got the big house. I got the boat. I got the cars and these trucks. I was in everything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. I was, at that time, I was the chairman of the Hospital Institutional Committee for Corrections. You know, I'm sponsoring about 15 guys. I'm teaching baptism at my church. I'm an active member of my community. I've got all my kids with me. At three years sober, I forgot to tell you this. At three years sober, state of California gave me my driver's license back. I went down. I, I got my contractor's license and I signed a contract with the giant skyscraper downtown San Diego that was just a passel of money. And I went down and I bought me a brand new truck and paid cash. I came home and the phone was ringing. I picked up the phone and there was this gal. I'd never heard her voice before. She says, your name's Kip Collins? I said, yes. She goes, do you know Sandy so-and-so? And I said, yeah. She goes, that's my mama and you're my father. And I want to get to meet you. I want you to meet your grandchildren. could have knocked me over with a feather. I'm going to tell you something here that's sometimes hard for me to talk about, but I talk about it because it's the way it is. I spent a lot of time in institutions, in jails. In those jails, the races separate. You walk in those rooms, it's real different there. There's a lot of things, a lot of old ideas I had when I came in here that I ain't never going to give up. A lot of it had to do with race. I might not have said it, but I felt it. Ain't nothing I'm proud of. And that little girl came, and she brought my children, my grandchildren, and I've been waiting for my grandchildren, and she brought them over, and my grandchildren are black. And it was just like this. And then God says, well, Mr. Racy, how do you feel about this? <laughs> Well, 
and they are my pride and joy. I just started laughing. Y'all be real careful what you say you never will do, you know. And I got to see, you know, because I love my babies and I love my daughter and and we have a real good thing. You know, at 10 years I had it all. I I had just gone to the Seattle Convention, experienced that five years before, and it just really rocked me off into service and I was involved in everything. I just went, spent two months in Australia going to meetings about how it's not all over Australia and I just had the greatest time and I came home. I was sitting there and I was just doing a gratitude list that morning and I was going, how, how do you get from that bamboo patch to here in 10 years? This is absolutely impossible. I was so full of gratitude and thankful to my God. And I was sitting there and I was reading the newspaper and I'm reading, and I'm reading where this man broke into this woman's house. And he tied her up and sexually assaulted her in front of her children and then took a knife and cut her to pieces. And I just said, oh my God. And I got down to her name and it was my daughter. And I want to tell each and one of you here that I'm absolutely perfectly capable of first degree murder. You touched one of my children. And I am nuts and I am absolutely insane. I went to that hospital. I saw my daughter. He had lost her breast, most of her face and her left arm. And she did not look human. And I, you see, I don't know about anger. But I'll tell you this, when I get real quiet, I'm making plans. See, when I get ready to do something, I plan on getting away with it. I ain't going to tell everybody what I'm about to do, you know. And I'm making plans, and I'm nuts, and I can't sleep. You see, I know all the right people. They caught this guy. He's in jail. I can put his name on a piece of paper and have him taken care of like that. And I'm nuts, and I'm crazy, and I'm looking in that book. I'm looking for an angle. And you only know what it says in there? I'll tell you all. Save you from reading it says this about resentment and about anger. It says it'll cut me off from the sunlight of the spirit and the insanity will return. And there ain't nothing in there that says unless someone rapes your daughter. It doesn't say that. It says quite clearly that I cannot afford the dubious luxury of living in that because it will kill me. And my sponsor told me when I got here that nothing and nobody could be more important than me being sober doing the things I have to do to be sober. What I have to do is I have to get down on my knees and pray for that man to have everything out of life I want. If you think that's easy, you try it. And I got on my knees every single morning and I prayed for that man to have everything out of my out of life that I wanted. And I ain't going to tell you I forgive him yet. I'm still working on that. But I'll tell you this, the insanity went. The rock went out of my gut. And I was able to be a father for my daughter the very first time she ever really, really needed me. She didn't need an execution. She needed a father. My grandchildren needed a grandfather. And I had the resources and the compassion and the love to do it. And I was there for her for the first time in her life when she really needed me. And you folks gave me that. You taught me how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I know how to kill people. I know how to do all kinds of things, but I don't know how to do that. You know, I was getting through that. About that time, I'd gone to a doctor, and they told me I had cancer. Said he's going to have to cut my lip off. I dipped for a long time, and I, you know, I like my lips right where they're at. <laughs> I like kissing girls, and I just couldn't imagine anyone wanting to kiss me with no lips, you know. And uh, <laughs> went to see my doc, my sponsor, and he says, "You got money? Go see another doctor." And I went and saw another doctor who told me the same thing. And I ended up going to four different doctors. And I finally went to this high-priced plastic surgeon. Great man. And I told him, 
one of the problems I had with these doctors was the radical surgery they had to do, and they had to pop me out, and they had to give me all this pain medication, and I told him what I had just walked through, and I'm in deep emotional pain, and you can't put anything that affects me in my neck, no matter what. I'd rather die of the cancer than die of this disease. I said, the only way I can do this is with Novocaine and aspirin. And I got a doctor to agree to it, and I did it. And they cut from here to here, down to here, and they cut a wedge out of my mouth, and they put it back together. And I did that on aspirin. And I ain't no tough guy. I ain't no tough guy. But I am willing to go to absolutely any length to stay sober. Ain't nothing in this world more important than you being clean sober. You see, my, my body, my disease does not know the difference. And when I am in emotional pain, if I put anything in my body to hide from that pain, I'm in deep trouble. You know? And I know that. You know, the next thing is going on, you know, I got through that. I had the surgery. You know, me and my wife, we were as close as two women could be. Two men and women. We went fishing together. We spoke together. I heard, you know, I said, <laughs> you'll understand why in a minute. <laughs> right, something was wrong, man. I couldn't put it on, you know, but you know when something's wrong. You come home, it just ain't the same, you know, and I, I said, Connie, what's wrong? What's something going on? She looked at me and she said, we got to talk. You guys hate that when they tell you that. You walk in, we got to talk. Oh, man. You know it ain't something wonderful. And she took me and we sat in the living room and she looked at me and she's crying. And I said, what's going on? And she took my hand. And she said, Kip, she goes, you're the best husband I ever dreamed about having. She goes, you're the best man I've ever known. And if I wanted a man, it would sure be you. You guys caught on quicker than I did. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, I can't live this lie no more. I said, what lie? She goes, I'm a lesbian. And I'm in love with Chrissy and me and her are leaving. I said, you're what? <laughs> I did not know how to handle that one. I wasn't expecting it. You know, it, it was not, I did not approve of it. It was not in the plan. And I reacted what I always do, you know. I reacted with anger. And I screamed and I yelled and I said things to this woman. And I ran it in rage and I went nuts for about a month. Just went absolutely nuts. I went to go talk to a guy named Bill Wilson. <laughs> He's a Catholic priest. And I went and talked to him. And I'm telling him my sad woe. You know, and he's looking at me and he's shaking his head. He's going, oh, my, my, my. Oh, my, 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 my. My, my, my. I said, so what do you think, Father? He said, well, he said, you're a student of that book, aren't you? Well, but you got Alcoholics Anonymous. Said, yeah, I am. He just sounds just like that guy. I'm, I believe it's page 61. I said, which one is that? He said, you know, that guy that thought he could rest out of fashion out of life if he only managed well. But sometimes he was nice and kind and modest and self-sacrificing and generous. And sometimes he was mean. But everything this man ever did, it was done so he could get something. I said, well, what does that have to do with me? He said, well, you're going on and on telling me everything that you did for this woman. And everything you did for her children. And what a great man you have been. And how she has horribly wronged you. He goes, what do you know about love? I said, well, I know about love. Well, our people in the AA love me. He said, no. He said, what do you know about unconditional love? 
I go, well, you know, just, you know, he really says, let me explain something. He says, any time you love someone, you do something for them. Either you do it out of love or you did it with a hook in it. And if there was a hook in anything you ever did for this woman, that ain't love. You were just trying to manipulate her. He says, you know, on the bottom of that second, the next page, says, the very first requirement of this program is that you quit playing God. And you got no right to stand in judgment of this woman's sexuality. This is her business. It's between her and her God, not you. You owe her an amends. I went, I owe her an amends? What about me? <laughs> she says, you go home and you write about love. You write about it. You write, do an inventory on that marriage. And I went home and I did that. I followed directions. I wrote it. That woman was a... I could not have asked her to be a better wife. She did everything that she ever promised that she was going to do to me. She took care of my kids. She was faithful to me. She honored me, respected me. You know, and we raised our kids together and we had a great life and she was the dearest friend and I respected hardly any woman any more than this woman. And I finally had to understand what unconditional love was and I went and I released her. You know, and today she's with another woman and they're married and, uh, and she kept my last name. She's my sister. And I didn't know you could do that. Some some woman do you wrong, you kick him to the curb and go next, you know. I didn't know, you know, you could still have a relationship with it. You could let a relationship change, you know. It didn't have to be the way I wanted it. I don't know what's right or wrong about it. All I know is it was none of my business. I'm only responsible for me. My sponsor told me this. You know, when we were going through these steps, and he said, you know the only thing you're responsible for? I said, what? He says, your actions, your reactions to other people's actions, and your inactions. You concentrate on those three things, you stay out of everybody else's business. You know? And that's a fact. I'm responsible for my reactions to what everybody else does. You know, and I got on the other side of that, and it was just me and my daughter, and this man came and asked me for my daughter's right hand. Real nice young man, he's a pilot. I get three tickets. And, uh, <laughs> that had nothing to do with it. You know, and, uh, he came and asked me for her hand. You know, and that man thought enough of me to ask me for my hand. And I found out later, my daughter made him ask me first, you know. And she thought enough of me. And that might not sound like you guys gave that to me. Alcoholics Anonymous gave that to me. I had thrown that away. I had thrown all my rights to my children away. And I was able to give my daughter the kind of wedding I dreamed about giving her the day she was born. I write a check for $250 to master charge, and I will every day for the rest of my life, every month. First of every month, you know. And I don't ever regret it, you know. I don't ever regret it. And, uh, and she, she just made National Honor Roll Society, and she has a great marriage, you know. She's finishing up her master's degree in special education in Texas. You know, she was gone, it was just me and my son, me and my little boy. And, you know, me and him, and you guys, who taught me how to be a father. You see, I got involved in his life. I got custody of him when I was about four years old. He came to live with me, and I helped him finish school. And, you know, he graduated from high school at the age of 23 years old, and I said that was impossible, but he did. And we got incredibly involved in Special Olympics, and we were involved in that for years. We did everything. We built a fishing boat together, and we went on camping trips together. We went on fishing trips. And she, he grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he grew up in this room. And people loved him and accepted him, and he was a part of this. And he had a huge family, and he was loved. And he loved Alcoholics Anonymous. He couldn't talk to you, but he sure he he understood the language of the heart real well. And my son got sick, and it was just me and my baby boy. I didn't know what to do, and I took him to the hospital, and I sat with my son for the next four months. 
He had, had a small operation and he got a staph infection in his blood. On October 4th, he died in my arms. Just before his 25th birthday. And I want to tell you that the promises came true to me in my worst time. Not in my good time. Because it was at this time that I understood exactly what serenity means. I don't know what it means to you. Serenity to me has nothing to do with standing there watching a beautiful sunset with her with a pocket full of money. That might be nice. That's a fantasy. You know? Serenity is watching a thing you love the absolute most in life. God. And hurt worse than you can ever imagine hurting. You don't even know a human being could hurt that much. But at the same time, in your heart of hearts, knowing that this is God's business and it ain't personal. This is the way it's supposed to be. And a total acceptance in my heart of that at the same time. And I got on my knees that morning and I got down on my knees and I thanked the God of my understanding for the ten years that you people gave me to be the kind of father to my son I always dreamed about being. And I buried my son, you know, and it was just me and I didn't know what to do. I've been going to, never been to school and this is what's happened since that day. I went to school, I'd only been to the eighth grade, was the last grade I completed. I, I went to school and I was getting a degree, I was almost finishing my degree and they told me I needed to finish high school before I finished this degree. And I told them I didn't need to, they said no you have to, you know, and, and I finished high school and you know, and then I got a degree and marketing, and man of business management. And, uh, my sponsor, when this woman left, one of the first things I wanted her to do was jam a woman into my life immediately. You know, I needed a woman. He said, I said, I'm lonely. He says, you're not lonely, you're horny. You know, it's not the same thing. And uh, he goes, you cannot have a relationship until you do not need one. What are you talking about? He says, when you, you need to live by yourself. You need to know who you are. You need to take care of your own needs. You know? You need to learn how to live by yourself and do things and you learn how to go like you. And when you're on someday, when you're real comfortable in your skin and you don't need no woman or any human being to make you fulfill as a human being, so then you can have a relationship. Until then, you're just looking for a hostage. You know? And I followed his advice. I dated a lot of women. I had fun, but I didn't get involved in any kind of relationship, you know. And I, and I lived by myself, and I did all that, you know. And one day I was sitting at home, and I was going, God, my life is good. This is nice. You know, I ain't got to answer to nobody. I can come and go as I please. My house is nice and clean. I know where everything is. This is all right. It's okay. I don't need nobody, you know. And I, I got down on my knees in my morning meditation. I said, God, everything's good. Thank you. I said, but if it be your will, <laughs> you learn how to become an AA lawyer here when you're talking to God. <clears throat> if it be your will, I would like to experience true love one more time in my life. But if it's not, it's okay. And I went about my business. I just let it go. And about two weeks later, I got a phone call. And I picked up the telephone, and it was this gal's mother, a girl I had dated about a year before. And I said, hey, how you doing? And she goes, well, I'm doing good, but Carmen's a real mess. And I said, really, what happened? She said, oh, she got drunk with this other gal. They were all loaded on dope and liquor, and they wrecked on Interstate 5. They hit Her legs are broken in 16 places. She's got brain damage. She's going to be in hospital for years. I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Well, what can I do to help? She said, you can come and get your daughter. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, she didn't tell you? I said, no. She said, you're a three-month-old three baby. 
And I went up there to that Los Angeles, and I went up there, and I opened that door, and that grandma put that baby in my arms, and I fell head over heels in love, you know. Everyone told me, he says, Chip, he says, you got to get a blood test, make sure that's your baby. No, I don't. Said, what do you mean? I said, God gave me this baby, and I ain't giving her back. <laughs> And now, and it was just me and her for a year. Just me and her. I loved every minute of it, you know. And I, I was at a meeting I've been going through for years, and I, I saw this gal, me and her, been on many committees together, and she asked me if she could hold my baby. And I said, sure, and she's looking at my baby, my baby's looking at her, and I'm looking, you know, and there's a certain chemistry there, and I'm going, hmm. <laughs> I said, well, how's John, her husband? She goes, oh, me and John are divorced. I said, oh, really, that's too bad. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. I said, if you don't mind me asking, what was the problem? She goes, well, I wanted children, and he didn't. I said, oh, you like children, do you? We've been married two years. Come along. And a year ago, next week, she put a little boy in my arms. He's going to be a year old next Saturday. We're having an AA birthday party for him. He's going to be sober for one year now. <laughs> His name is William Casey, and I call him God's Will. You know? And he's the sunshine of my life. I just want to tell you all this. That the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is outlined in the first 164 pages. Will work for every single person in this room. It don't matter what you've done. It don't matter what you ain't done. If you are willing to live by these principles, you will get the opportunity to experience every moment of your life. You know? And I will tell you, it's not all good. <laughs> it's not all good. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Some of it's crying. Some of it's laughing. But you're not going to have to miss any of it. You know? Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me how to live in a world I've never understood right from the day. Taught me how to do all kinds of things that I didn't know how to do, like be a father, like be an employer, like be an employee, to be a son. You know, anything I ever have, anything I ever did, it's going to be because of you folks. You gave it to me. I want to thank you all for being real patient. I get real long-winded. You know, I can't help it. I get up here, they give me coffee, I just start talking. Thank you for being patient with me, and uh, thanks for letting me be a part of it. That's all I got for you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.